Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. We are in Acts chapter 3 as we work our way through this book uh, that kind of begins this era of the church in this new movement of God. And I want to start off just thinking about our world a little bit. Any of you relate to this experience? You have a, a problem with some piece of technology and you, you dial up the number there that says support thinking you're going to find some support. And as you call that number, as you begin to have a conversation with, with that person, you hear something uh, that says, I'm sorry, I can't help you with that problem. You say, well, can you transfer me to someone else? And they say, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you with that problem. They transfer you to someone else and you say, I'm sorry, I can't help you with that problem. And you begin to get frustrated, right? Uh, you begin to talk louder because that's gonna help. Uh, you begin to get frustrated. Or maybe there's this experience. You've had to go to, uh, you've, you've been sick and you had to go to a doctor or to a hospital uh, in order to get well. And of all the people in the world, surely these are the people who should be compassionate and caring and, and really try to make life as easy on you in a difficult time as possible. And yet uh, you find out that they don't want to pay your insurance. So you call the insurance company and, uh, and, and they say, I'm sorry. Uh, that, that's not covered and you call someone else and they say, oh, I'm sorry, that doesn't appear that you checked that one tiny box on that one giant form in order to get this uh, pre-approved in order to be covered. And you just, you ever have these experiences where you just get frustrated with life in a world? It sometimes is a very inhuman world where we don't see people for who they really are and we don't value people for who they are and, and we get passed around and handed off from one person to another without anyone really engaging and meeting us at our point of need. Um, and, and to be honest, like these are still kind of first world problems. These are not even the, the really awful problems in our world. I look at young ladies in Iran that are protesting and begging just to be treated with dignity and not treated as property. And they're not seen with the value and the worth that they bring to the world. Uh, you see uh, that relative was recently traveling in Europe and they were talking about how houses that used to be houses of worship are now houses of prostitution uh, where child trafficking is oftentimes taking place in these, in, in these countries. And it's tragic and it's awful and you look at it and it's frustrating, isn't it? Well, here's what I want us to do today. I want us to look and I want us to see what the scriptures have to say to bring us some hope. And I call this sermon Leaps of Faith, Last Hope of Humanity, not because it takes a giant leap of faith to believe it, but because once you have this faith in the hope that we see in Christ, it ought to make you leap with joy. So let me read with us in Acts 3. And we're going to read this story. And as we run through uh, kind of the Acts, you get into these longer sections. So you're going to have to lean in and listen and remind yourselves what it's like to listen to a story being read. But I want you to try to visualize the scene as it, as it unfolds. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate 
to ask alms of all those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and he began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people with him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who always sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking and begging for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and to John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though it was by our own power or our own goodness that we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over to oh, delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are all witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you know. In the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come to you in the presence of the Lord, and that you may send the Christ whom, who, whom was appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him and all proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and it is your in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. It's an amazing story and an episode, isn't it? In this, uh, this, this story of what Jesus is doing in the life of his people and the life of his followers. And it's amazing when you think about it, there's lots of detail that really point to the historicity of this account. This wasn't a legend, this wasn't a myth, this wasn't just a rumored idea, this wasn't uh, just someone that they took a form and said, well, we have a, we have a great God too. Uh, this is a historic event. It was in the ninth hour or in, in, when, when this took place, meaning there were two key times of prayer, and this was the afternoon hour of prayer, which is about 3 p.m. Uh, it's uh, about Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Jesus who was born in this town they all knew. And there's all kinds of evidence that this was a historical event, and it was a man who was lame since birth that they encounter, meaning it was a congenital permanent disease that he had come from, uh, come into the world with crippled feet, 
most likely was not paralyzed, but was unable to walk on his own. And so this man who had this, this severe injury um, likely was carried every day to the temple where he had asked for alms. In that world, it was considered appropriate for all religious people uh, who adhered to Judaism to give alms to the poor, to give. And that was a way to curry favor, but it was also an obligation, something they would do. And so if you're going to live as a dependent on the needs, uh, on the gifts of others, it makes sense that they would take you to the temple, to the gate where everyone has to pass through and you would stand there and ask for a handout and ask for help. And so likely his relatives or some friends some friends picked him up and carried him there and set him down at the gate day after day. And as they came to temple to, war, to pray um, at, at regular intervals, uh, all these people in town began to know who this guy was. Because every day he was there with his hand out. And every day they walked by and every day maybe they dropped a little bit in his bucket in order to meet his needs. This was the routine of his day. And for this guy, think about it, what it would be like for him never to have known any other life. This has likely been his story since he was a little child. That even as a child, they would have picked him up and carried him and sat there. And as a child, unable to run and walk with all the other kids. As a child who, who sat there at the gate begging for a handout so that he could get something to eat to meet his own needs. He had done this day after day, week after week, year after year, likely for decades. And yet this day is going to be radically different for him. God had other plans for him this day. Verses three to five, I want you just to look and I want you to think through all the words that it mentions that have to do with sight or seeing. Just listen as I read here. It says, seeing Peter and John about to go to the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. And the lame man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something in return. It's interesting how much the, the author, Luke, wants us to understand something that was happening here. See, Peter and John, they, they saw this man. Think about what it would be like to be a cripple that, that was there. You probably vacillated between total despair and thinking no one is going to stop. No one's going to give me anything today. It's just going to be another day of people going past me, walking by. Maybe they drop something in. Maybe they don't. But think about how despairing it would have been to be this crippled man. And sometimes you may want to scream out to try to get someone's attention. Do you see me? I can't eat if you don't feed me, if you don't give me something to eat. But he probably went back and forth between begging and trying to interrupt people that were walking past him and didn't see him and despair at just giving up hope that no one ever noticed the guy who was always there, always looking for a handout, always needing something. But here, Peter and John come, and you notice they see each other. It says they look at him. They tell him, look at us. And it says he fixed his gaze upon them. There's an expectation there. And now he's not just hoping for something. He's expecting to get something in return. These guys see me. There's going to be something different. Have you noticed how easy it is in our world to walk past people and not to notice them? Do you know how easy it is to go to the grocery store and you're, you know, maybe talking on your phone or flipping through your social media and doing something and you're going down the produce aisle and you're stepping around someone and maybe you say, excuse me, as you almost bump into them, but you don't really look them in the eye, you don't really notice, you don't really engage with them at all. We live in a world that's so fast paced, that's so rapid and we're so exhausted and we're so tired, but it was their world too, that oftentimes they walked right past people 
They were made in the image of God and they did not see them. They did not notice them. What a difference though it makes when we recognize someone as a human being created in the image of God, valuable, worthy of our attention. And so Peter and John said, look at us. And they lock eyes and now the lame man's expecting a response. Verses six to eight, what's Peter say? Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to you. Rise up and walk in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And he reaches out his hand and takes him by the right hand and begins to lift him up, right? Now it's interesting as you notice what happens here, it's interesting to see how faith works here. Uh, When is it that this man feels his ankles and his feet strengthened? It's not till after he stands. It's in the act of expressing that faith, in the act of standing up. It says, Peter says, rise and walk. And the guy reaches up and takes his hand. And as he stands, it, it says that immediately upon standing, he feels the strength move into his ankles and his feet. And I think it's interesting that faith so often works that way. That, that oftentimes it's not until we act that we sense God moving in, our, in, in the midst of something. It's not until we begin to step out in faith of the boat that we realize we can walk on water as Peter did. It's so often not until there's a movement in that place that in the action of trusting God that we experience his help. And it would normally take, it's interesting when you think about this guy who'd been lame. Um, any of you ever had to put a cast on and had a cast on for three, four months? Um, or maybe just six or eight weeks, you do it. And what happens to, if you got a cast on this leg and not a cast on the other leg, uh, what happens to the, the leg that's in the cast over time? It just starts to do this, doesn't it? And you take it off and you're like, oh, dude, I got a wimpy little leg now. Like, where'd all the muscle go? Because it begins to deteriorate and it begins to atrophy because there's no work that's happening. Imagine if your whole life has been spent being carried about and unable to walk. And now all of a sudden you feel uh, the strength that flows into his ankles and to his feet. And he's able to immediately stand up. And it says he begins to run and leap and, and walk. I mean, what an amazing occurrence that would have been for this guy to have experienced. And and what normally would have taken months of rehabilitation and strengthening. You know, look at my brother over here, a physical therapist. He takes people that have come through surgeries and walks them through months of rehab in order to get there, uh, in order to get their health back. And this guy isn't going through any of that stuff, but instantaneously, he's got full access to everything he needs to run and jump. His life is changed forever. This is a complete healing with no doubts, doubts or vagueness at all, right? It's not like they're like, ah, oh, it seems like he's got it a little bit better. No, the lame dude that had been there for decades and they'd walked past day in and day out and seen forever is jumping and leaping and dancing and everyone understands what it is that just took place. And so verse eight, what you see is it says, he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Um, it's fascinating to me that he, he immediately goes into the temple and Peter goes with him. And it's interesting that what is the most natural, normal response for a layman who's been healed? I mean, did Peter tell him like, hey, dude, jump around a little bit. Hey, dude, let's go. Like, can you, can you get, let's get up. Let's jump around. And no one like hit a, hit a, hit a song and they didn't start playing with a, you know, a bump and beat to get him moving or something. But immediately when he's healed, the dude just starts praising God and he's jumping with excitement and joy because that's what you do when God has invaded your life and done something good. You naturally rejoice and he did the thing that came natural to him. 
Now, I'm guessing there were some negative, cynical types, you know, guys that were kind of over in the corner that were watching and like, oh, let's not get carried away. Like, let's, let's not, like, I don't know about this jumping around stuff. Like, I understand, like, maybe God did something in you. Maybe you can walk, but let's just kind of, let's take this step at a time. Let's not get too excited. Uh, but no, that's not the way they were going to react, right? Because the lame was now walking, and so they were going to rejoice. No wonder he's full of excitement and what he can do. Do you also realize that it says when he came into the temple, that this would have been the first time in his life he was allowed into the temple? And in temple worship in that day, those who had crippled feet were not allowed to go into the inside of the temple. And so this would have been the first time he ever stepped through those doors with everyone else. Can you imagine what it had been like to be the outcast at the gate that everyone walks by your whole life and now all of a sudden you're walking in and you're like, dude, I'm going in with everyone else to get to go experience a closeness in the temple that I'd never experienced before. I think it would have been astounding to be him. It's interesting too that kind of what you see about faith what did this man think he was going to get that day? When they said, look at me, he thought he was going to get some alms. He was going to get a handout. Um, he got alms that were better than anything he ever received before, right? And he received something freely that he had never experienced. And so often, when we, when we take a step of faith, we get something greater than what we ever anticipated before. And so this man now is going into the temple and all the people around him, it says they're emotionally impacted too. They're, they're seeing what happened in this guy's life and they're getting excited. It says they were astounded and filled with wonder. Whenever you see someone's changed life, does it ever just blow you away? When you see someone who is far from God and God grabs hold of them and he turns them around and their life begins to go in a whole different direction and you thought, dude, I, I wrote that guy off a long time ago and yet now they're running past me in their, in their faithfulness to Jesus and your mind is blown by what it is you saw. And that's what's happening here is these people are looking at him, they're looking at the changed life of this man and it says that they began to get emotionally involved in the experience because they saw the change that God was bringing to this man's life. In verse 11 then, um, kind of this crowd begins to gather around him and everyone's watching and they're beginning to say, like, dude, what all is happening here? They're beginning to unpack it. And what you see is the scene slightly shifts as Peter begins to speak to the crowd. And what's gonna happen is, Peter's gonna take advantage of this teachable moment. Parents, you do this all the time where you're like, this seems like a good chance. This seems like an opportunity to talk to my, my kids about something important. And what Peter's doing, he's looking around and these people are going, I can't believe what I just saw. And Peter's going, let me talk to you about something that's even more important than what you just observed. Give your attention and appreciation to God. It's his power that does this, not ours. And it's interesting in verses three to, uh, 13 to 15, he begins to go back to history. And for those of us that are kind of coming in 2,000 years later, we didn't grow up in Judaism, we didn't grow up in that world, it feels like a bit of a left turn, but he starts talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what he's doing is he's pointing back and saying, what you're just witnessing here with this man is actually something that was generations old, that was promised to us, that was foretold, that was coming here. The same God that was at work in our father Abraham is at work in this situation. This new faith in Jesus is actually a very old faith. This is not something that we just invented, but this is actually an unfolding of what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were doing that's now come to us and God's creating, a, beginning a new work in the world through the same promises that he did. Notice the words that, that uh, these words actually 
or titles for Jesus, these actually all come from the Old Testament, where he talks about Christ as the servant. And you see that in Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, that Jesus was going to be, or the Messiah would be the suffering servant who would lay down his life in service to the world. He was the holy and righteous one. He was the author of life, the prophet like Moses, the Christ or Messiah, the seed of Abraham. Friends, this is why you want to study your whole Bible. Because this thing all is, is filled with many uh, different books, but they're all really one book. There's, there's really one author and everything's pointing to one divine purpose and everything ultimately is focused on Jesus. And what Peter is doing is he's going to all these people that grew up in Judaism and he's reminding them of Sunday school. And he's going, hey, do you remember the story you heard about Moses? Do you remember the story you heard about David? Do you remember what Samuel told David about the promise that he'd be a king forever? Do you remember what, uh, what happened with, uh, with, in Isaiah where he talked about there's a servant that's gonna come? All those stories were pointing to this moment. So your Sunday school was not wasted, but it all pointed to something that's happening right here. And he's gonna give a series of contrasts. He's gonna say, but you perceived it this way, but let me show you what God, how God saw it. He says, the people of Jerusalem denied Jesus and delivered him over to be killed. But God vindicated Jesus and raised him up to the exalted place. Peter's saying that God's view of Jesus and the crowd's view of Jesus were opposed to one another. Friends, can I give you a simple statement you can trust? It's not good to argue with people that raise, that raise themselves from the dead. You don't really want to be in an argument about life and death with the God of the universe that created everything. It's just not going to go well for you. He says, you denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you in place of the one who was the author of life, whom you killed. But God raised him from the dead. Uh, man, this is like dangerous territory for us lately, but I want to just mention there were some good football games yesterday. And as you think about some of the football games, great games, there were some amazingly close games. Can I just say this victory of Jesus was a greater reversal and overtime victory than any there's ever been? That what you see in Christ is everyone thought it was over. That when Christ died, they thought, the, they thought he had been defeated. They thought that, that the game had ended and that they were now in despair and everything they had put their hopes on had completely failed, but God wasn't done yet. Jesus was in the tomb, but God wasn't finished. Jesus was in the tomb, but the game wasn't over because Jesus is gonna walk out of the tomb and as he does, he's going to bring about an entire new world. It's the greatest reversal and overtime victory in history. It says, you killed the author of life, but the author of life couldn't be killed. And so he returned and his death was actually the way to a greater victory. You notice what Peter says. We were all witnesses. He's talking to people where? In Jerusalem. It's like, we saw it. We saw him carry a cross. We saw him on a cross. We saw him come down from a cross. We know that he went to a tomb. And then we saw him resurrected and walking around. And here's what's interesting in verse 16. Notice what Peter does. He says, and that Jesus, his name, by faith in his name, he's the one that made this man strong, the one you see and know, the one who's now in perfect health in the presence of you all. And what he's saying is, he said, look, this, this healing of this guy that you just witnessed, this is related to that, that thing that happened with Jesus. That somehow these two events are connected. That, 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 that death of Jesus upon a cross is still working itself out in the healing of this guy over here. And these two events are created. And he says, we were all witnesses of Jesus on the cross. We were all witnesses of the lame man that just walked. And these are all an outpouring of God's power. That's the same thing. And notice what he says, Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. 
Friends, sometimes people in our world, there's easy to be cynical because of the things you see. What I want you to know is what happens with this guy where he is perfectly restored. God doesn't halfway do anything. God doesn't sort of heal. God doesn't sort of restore. God doesn't sort of help you through a hard day. No, God takes that which was dead and he brings it to life. He takes that which didn't work and makes them to leap. This is what, this is what ultimately God does. It says it was by faith in his name. And Peter says, you know this man. You know his story. It'd be remarkable to have seen this guy day in and day out and know that he wasn't faking it. And now to see him leaping and walking. He says, how can I explain it? So interesting, if you go back to Isaiah 35, so uh, many, many centuries before this event, look at what Isaiah 35 says. Strengthen, talks about when the Messiah would come. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. See, centuries before, God said, one day I'm going to come and the lame are gonna leap. And this day, what Peter's saying is, the guy you see right here, this, is, this was told, us, told to us way or, uh, many, many years ago. In verse 17, he shifts and he begins to talk to the crowd around. He says, look, he's trying to be kind here because he's compassionate. He understands that just like he did, they can make mistakes. He says, I know you acted in ignorance as did your brothers. There's kind of an underlying thing here that says, I know you acted in ignorance before, but now you know. You saw Jesus. You've seen the lame man. And you're going to be accountable even to a greater degree. And it's not going to remove responsibility. And so ultimately what he's going to say is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the final word in the Bible about where you find hope. And if you do not trust him, if you do not turn to him, something's going to be wrong. It's why he immediately turns. He says, repent, therefore, and turn back. Um, he says, this is the call. So when he talks about what is it that they need to do in response to this message, he says, you need to repent, meaning you need to turn away from something. And then he says, and then you need to turn to something, turn back to God. And so you need to turn away from self. You need to turn away, he's going to say a little bit later, from wickedness, from your sin. You turn away from something and you turn to something else. It's repentance and faith always go together like two sides of a coin. That when you turn away from yourself, you immediately have to turn to something else. And he says that we're to turn back to the Lord. Now, when Peter is going to give the gospel message, I want to run through just a, a quick highlight of, a, of, of the major points that Peter is going to make. And then as we do, I want us to talk about implications of this for you and for me but really for our ministry and for our mission and how we operate as a church. So let's look at Peter's message. It's interesting that when Peter gives a gospel presentation here, it's really a simple, pretty straightforward presentation. He's gonna give three things that Jesus does for us, and he's gonna do three promises Jesus gives to us. And so the first, what are the essentials about Jesus and what he did for us? First, he says, Jesus died a substitutionary death. Jesus took the place of sinners. In fact, he says, you could have allowed that murderer to be put on the cross. Instead, you put Jesus on the cross in his place. Meaning Jesus took the place of sinners and murderers and was punished as a criminal, even though he was the holy and righteous one. 
So he died a substitutionary death, substituting himself for sinners. Jesus was raised from the dead. That there was a resurrection and an exaltation that were Jesus' victory. So he was killed on a cross, but he didn't stay there. He got up and was resurrected. And then lastly, Jesus is returning to make all things new. He's not just gonna, gonna casually kind of renew some things. He's gonna regenerate and make all things completely new. So Christ died, Christ was raised again, or Christ was raised and Christ will come again. Those are the three simple essentials that he says, you need to understand this about what Jesus did for you. And then he's gonna turn, he's gonna talk about three promises. What are the three promises that, God, that Christ, uh, if that's what Christ did for us, what are the three promises Christ gives to us? The first is, he says that your sins may be blotted out. It's interesting, the word blotted out means to wipe away, to obliterate, to erase, to the point that there is no trace left at all. Friends, do you realize that that's what you have in Christ? That your sins have been obliterated? That they've been wiped out? And that day, when they would take out a papyrus leaf, they would write on it, and the ink didn't soak into, uh, into the actual piece of paper that they were writing on. And so it was something that was easy for them to come and just to wipe it, wipe it and, and make it as though it was completely new. And they understood that. So when he says that your sins are, are blotted out, he's saying that what the record of every wrong you've ever done because of Christ is no more able to be found. That when God looks at the paper that lists all the things that you have done, he says it's as though they were never there. They've been completely wiped clean by Jesus. That's a promise that we have in him. Number two, he says you'll experience times of refreshing that may come from the presence of the Lord. Man, isn't that just, isn't that great, the relational aspect of that? That he says one of the promises you have if you put your faith in Christ is you are gonna experience times of refreshing that come from being in the presence of the Lord. That, that somehow having faith in Christ gives you access to a relationship with God that's so intimate and so close that he's going to, as it says in Isaiah, renew you with strength on the inside. Or as it says, as Jesus talked to the woman in the well, it's gonna be as though a well of water well, but kind of continues to produce itself within you so that you never thirst again. These are the promises that are ours in Christ. And then the third is the restoration of all things. He says that he may send Christ who will restore all things at the right time, just as he promised. Meaning that one day he will come back and he will make all things new for all those who are his. It's complete restoration. It's not partial. It's not he's gonna make the world a sort of better place. You understand that? He's gonna make it a world where everything goes together, psychological, physical, emotional, relational, social, spiritual, all ways we're made new and we're made whole and experience life forevermore. And these three things, that our sins will be blotted out, that we're gonna experience refreshment spiritually, and that we're gonna experience complete restoration in the end, those go together as kind of a package deal that when you put your faith in Christ, you get all of this together as part of the, the promise of God. Now, verses 22 to 26, I wanna watch my time here. Um, it feels like he goes on a rabbit trail. It's like, squirrel, like where do, why is he going over here and talking about Moses all of a sudden? You've just been talking about Jesus and his resurrection and his, his return and his, res, his uh, eventually kind of restoring all things new. And, and it feels like he's kind of go, getting distracted and getting off point. But really, this is important for their understanding of the gospel, and it's important for ours too. So I want to tease this out just a little bit. Why is he talking about Moses? 
Why is he talking about Samuel, who is the prophet to King David? Why is he talking about, uh, about Abraham? Remember, he's speaking to Jews who grew up hearing these Bible stories, and he wants to help them avoid a danger of, uh, that we all face in misreading the Bible. See, when you grow up in church, when you grow up around in the Bible Belt, when you grow up in a culture where these stories are just kind of repeated and you hear them, it's easy for you to take these stories and turn them into kind of moral fables and how to live a good life. It's easy to take these and go, oh, well, if Moses did that, what I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to speak truth to power and I'm supposed to help deliver people from, uh, from, from bad situations. And you turn it into kind of a moralistic story of this is how I'm supposed to be like Moses. You look at David and you go, oh, if David is the one that Samuel set apart and, and called the, the king of Israel because uh, he was the one that God had called and he stood up to the giant Goliath and defeated the giant Goliath, then I'm supposed to be the one who defeats the giants in my world too. And you look at Abraham and you think, oh, if Abraham's the one who trusted and stepped out in faith when he couldn't see the end and, and followed Jesus or followed the Lord into a, an unknown future, I'm supposed to step out in faith too. And we, we turn these stories into kind of moral fables that help us live a better life and help us find the good life. And what, what is Peter, why does he mention these people here? Because he wants us to understand something different. He says that uh, Peter's saying, no, all these people were really pointing to the point, person of Jesus. That Moses and everything we see about him, he was a type or a signpost to tell you about Jesus. Abraham was a type or signpost to point to Jesus. David was a type or signpost that points to Jesus. And Jesus is the greater Moses who brings truth to his people, sets his people free from the bondage, not of Egypt, but of sin, and delivers his people not to the promised land, but to a forever land where things are restored in his kingdom forever. Jesus is the greatest, is the greater David who slayed the giant of sin and death and reigns forever with his people in a greater way than any human ruler could. And Jesus is the, greater, uh, is the greater Abraham through whom all peoples and all nations and all tongues will find salvation and blessing forevermore. See, in the Old Testament, it said Abraham, that there would be a descendant of Abraham that through his seed, it would be blessed. And that seed it represents his descendants. But it's interesting in the passage in Genesis where this is mentioned, seed is singular. And Paul is gonna tease this out in Galatians 3.16 where he says the seed of Abraham wasn't just his general descendants that were gonna be a blessing, but it was a particular descendant of Abraham who was gonna emerge on the scene and through him, all the nations of the world were gonna be blessed. And that seed is Jesus, Peter's saying. Do you see why this is important? Because as Peter is unpacking this, he wants them to understand this isn't just about helping you sort of live a better life. This is about you experiencing an entirely new life because of who Jesus is. And what ultimately is he saying to us? See, to want your sins blotted out completely is an admission that you need, your, you need forgiveness, isn't it? For you to, to acknowledge that you want times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord is an acknowledgement that you, in your own strength, sometimes get discouraged and downcast and you can't find the strength to face the day. For you to, to desire a world where all things are made new as a, an acknowledgement that no wisdom of men, no political scheme, no, no nation on earth is ever going to bring in the full and final restoration that we desire and we hunger for. And so we look to Jesus. And what Peter is ultimately saying is, friends, that you have to have a joy that makes you leap like a lame man who now can walk for the first time. 
Because do you understand that your salvation is every bit of as big a miracle as the one that happened for the lame man? That as he was lame and unable to walk and immediately was restored and able to leap, that you were dead and now you're alive. That you were under judgment and now you're forgiven. That you were cut off from the Lord and now the Lord is in you. That you were under judgment, uh, future judgment and gonna be separated from the Lord eternally, but now you're going to live with him in a restored kingdom forevermore. And if you, don't, uh, if you understand that, your normal natural response ought to be to look like the lame guy that begins to leap and run and rejoice and celebrate the miracle that he's just experienced. And that's what Peter wants you to understand is that, that the Christian faith is not about helping you be a little bit better. Christian faith is about you experiencing an entirely transformed life because of Christ. Does that, does that encourage you? you see the, do you see the point Peter's making here? You see why the gospel ought to impact you deeply in your heart and cause you to change? Now here's what I, what I wanna do as we kind of, kind of close this out. Uh, I think it's important to say we can learn a lot about our own witness and evangelism from what happens here. And I think as we move forward as a church and as we think about the next three to five years and we think about moving into a downtown location in proximity to a whole lot of people and opportunity to engage that, I think this passage ought to shape the way that we plan our ministry um, for the future. But I think it also ought to shape your heart and my heart for the way we engage every single person every single day and the way in which we need to stop and we need to see those that are around us and see the opportunity for the Lord to do something in their life that would cause them to leap with joy at the goodness of God. We have that opportunity every single day. Uh, It's interesting with Peter, when you think about kind of what happens here, he begins by caring for a practical need, doesn't he? He doesn't begin, he doesn't stop up and walk up to the lame guy and just start preaching the gospel to him. He he really, uh, think about kind of the, the pattern of what we see here is he he seizes a moment because he senses an openness that the openness came because he cared for a practical need. He started with compassion and because of his compassion, he moved towards someone. He saw him and he said, look at me. And he engaged him in a personal way and, and entered into a conversation with this man. And then he reached out his own hand in order to help him. See, compassion expresses itself with practical care for others But Peter wasn't only concerned for meeting his physical need, was he? That once he'd met his physical need, he saw that as an opportunity to move into meeting a deeper need that he needed to understand, which was a spiritual need. And friends, so often, whenever we wanna engage those around us with the goodness of God's grace, I think it's important for us to recognize that so often it happens through secondary means. Oftentimes it happens through trouble that they're experiencing in their life. They get themselves in a bind. They, st- they, they stumble and fall and find themselves in, in a lot of trouble. And through that, now there's an openness for them to hear the gospel in a new way. It's a need in someone else's life. They have a loved one who's going through something and their angst and their, their frustration about that situation begins to open them up to hear something else. Sometimes they see an inexplicable work of God in someone's other life that they can't explain. And because they see a changed life over here, they go, well, I wanna know more about that. And what you see in Peter is, with all the things that are happening and these people that have been, this man that's been healed and the crowd that gathers, and it says they were all filled with wonder. Man, Peter, if he just senses like, maybe there's a cracked door that's of openness here, what's, what's Peter do? He jumps through. He's like, let me tell you about Jesus. 
Uh, friends, what would it look like for us to live that way? To look around with compassion at the people around us? Look for the places where they're experiencing trouble? To meet them on the streets where they are? To engage them in a relational way that just says, look at me, I see you. I see what you're going through. I see the need that you have. I see this and I wanna come alongside you and help meet this practical need out of compassion and love for you. But then not just to stop there, but to say, but even beyond that, I also wanna tell you about why I'm doing this act of love and kindness. This act of love and kindness is ultimately about that love of Jesus. And this is my outworking of that truth that I wanna make sure that you know. See, Peter was both compassionate and convicting. He's loving in his actions, but he also turns around and says, repent and turn, otherwise you're in trouble. And he preaches the truth of the gospel. And so it's compassion alongside con conviction. And in our world, that may look like a unicorn. We don't th seem to think those two can go together. But friends, that's the ministry we need, to, we, need to, we need to carve out. That we are those that show up, that serve the needs of those around us. And if we, if we simply preach the gospel without caring for the people, then our message rings hollow and seems empty, doesn't it? But if all we do is care for the physical needs and the social needs of others and we don't ever get to the gospel, um, then we're never gonna give them truth that truly transforms all of life and delivers them for eternity more. So we have to do both. And Jesus, it said, when he looked out upon a city, he was gutted with compassion because they were like sheep who were lost and without a shepherd. Friends, let's commit to meet people where they are, to offer compassion and care for their obvious needs. And let's look for bridges to share the gospel with them and call them to faith in Christ. Let me say this too. You may think as you hear this, that that's something for people on stage and people that are called, called ministers or pastors. It's not. This is something for everyone. And you may think you can't do this. You may think Jesus, you may think, you know, Jesus, I'm, I don't know that I can, I can step out like Peter did. I'm, you know, I, I don't know if you know my past. Jesus, I don't know if you know um, that I'm kind of shy. Jesus, I don't know that, you know, the, the things that I've done in my past that I'm not sure I can speak to people about you. You realize that the one who's preaching this message is Peter? Um, what did Peter do when Jesus, when they came to get Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Dude took out a sword and chopped the dude's ear off. Like Peter, he so misread the situation. He's like, I got this, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, that's not the answer. What happens later? Jesus denies him three times. Jesus says, or Jesus says, tells Peter, you're gonna deny me, deny me three times. Peter's like, I'll never do that. And immediately he's like, I don't even know the guy. Right? This is the Peter that's preaching this message. You can do this too. Um, let's see people. Let's love people where they are. And then let's point them to a greater love in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that you would make us bold as we look at Acts, as we look at that next week, and this is prayer for boldness, that you'd make us a people who are compassionate and kind, that, that run to meet the needs of those in our city. But Father, even in the midst of that, that we also are bold with the gospel to tell them that our love is indicative of a greater love, a love that, that came and that died a sacrificial death, a love that reigned victorious through a resurrection and a love that will return one day to make all things new. Father, help us to trust it to be true. Amen.